Welcome to Songcraft, Spotlight on Songwriters, a bi-weekly podcast featuring in-depth conversations with and about the creators of lyrics and music that stand the test of time. I'm Scott B. Beaumont. And I'm Paul Duncan. Songcraft is part of the American Songwriter Podcast Network, which can be found at americansongwriter.com. To make sure you don't miss an episode, please take a moment to subscribe to our show via Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. You can also keep up with us on social media by searching for one word, Songcraft Show, or visit us at songcraftshow.com. Our guest on this episode of Songcraft is musician, rapper, poet, activist, and singer-songwriter Michael Franti, who is best known for his work with his group Spearhead. He'll join us in a few moments to discuss the evolution of his music, the creation of hits such as Say Hey I Love You and The Sound of Sunshine, and his most recent album, Work Hard and Be Nice. Part one. You know, Paul, um, in my life, when I'm not a podcaster, right? you know, like when I earn money, (laughs) (laughs) I work as a... uh, an author and a book editor. Mm. Um, so I kind of traffic in words, you know, right. one might say, and sometimes things that are strange grammatically or where it's hard for me to figure out, you know, exactly what someone is communicating. It, it kind of sticks in my head. So the other night I was in the kitchen, I started singing to myself the song heaven by Brian Adams. You know the song, right? <laughs> yeah. That's what you do when you're in the kitchen. That's just what you do when yeah. you're in the kitchen. So I started thinking, baby, you're all that I want. When you're lying here in my arms, mm-hmm. I find it hard to believe we're in, we're heaven. in heaven. Yeah. Now I've always heard that song as baby, you're all that I want mm-hmm. period. When you're lying here in my arms, I find it hard to believe we're in heaven. Yeah. It's like hard to believe I'm, we're in heaven. Right that's now. one phrase, yeah. right? But why is it hard to believe that you're in heaven? If she's there in your arms, hmm. like, I, so I started thinking, is it supposed to be, baby, you're all that I want, period. Mm-hmm. When you're lying here in my arms, I find it hard to believe, period. We're in heaven. Oh. See what so I'm saying? We're in heaven is like its own sentence. Yeah. Because I always hear it as, I find it hard to believe we're in heaven. Why do you find that hard to believe? You're right there with her, like you're well, in heaven. Maybe their relationship is hell. But it does, <laughs> it, it does, I mean, it does raise an interesting point about sort of implied punctuation yeah. in, in song lyrics. It's, it's almost like that thing of saying, hey, let's go eat, Grandma, which has a comma in it. <laughs> right. You take the comma out, let's go eat, let's Grandma. Let's go eat, Grandma. Yeah. yeah. It's, uh, and, you know, when you're writing lyrics, I, I never put punctuation in a lyric sheet. You know, so it's just, you just write the words. Most people don't. So I, w- I would imagine that maybe maybe Brian didn't put any commas anywhere. But, you know, grammar is one of those funny things that, that it intersects, you know, interestingly with music lyrics. And sometimes bad grammar works better. Yeah. Um, and a lot of the songs that, that we listen to have horrible grammar in them. You know, people use you and I when it should be you and me or, yeah. you know, all the time. And it, it, one of the ones that really has always kind of vexed me is Paul McCartney, Live and Let Die. Right. He says, in this ever-changing world in which we live in. Right. I'm, <laughs> I'm pretty sure that's what it says. I mean, I, I had asked myself if it maybe says in which we're living. Right. Um, but I, I even, you know, as we were talking about, I found a Washington Post interview where they asked McCartney himself, which is it, you know? And he doesn't seem to know. <laughs> He's, he said, uh, I think it's in which we're living. And then he starts to sing the song to himself in this ever-changing world. And he goes, huh, it's funny. There's, there's too many ends in the phrase. 
And then he says, I don't know. It's, it's either in which we're living or it could be in which we live in. And that's kind of wronger, but cuter. <laughs> so that's McCartney's take on it. I love that he has no idea he what the lyrics are. He doesn't know what his lyrics are. Yeah. But he's, maybe he kind of likes the wrong one. <laughs> <Right>. <laughs> well, you know, I want to go back to the you versus me, you know. I mean, yeah. sorry, you, the, the you and me, you and, you I, and yeah. I. Yeah. So... Like you and me should talk about that. Yeah. You, you and me should. So like the old Eric Carmen song, hungry eyes. Right. Yeah. So I feel the magic between you and I, that is not proper yeah. grammar because what if kids, if you're listening, what you're supposed to do is take the you out and just, just say what, what would be the opposite object of a preposition? You know, would it be me or me is the object of a preposition. Yeah. So you wouldn't say, I feel the magic between I exactly. Or, <laughs> un, you know, it's, it's under I yeah. or it, it's over I. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, and, and I'm just going to go on another diversion for a go second. Ahead. If you work in a professional workplace and you send out an email to everyone and you end it with, if you have any questions, please speak to Marlene or myself. Stop doing that. Take out Marlene <laughs> and you're saying, please speak to myself. Why does everyone do that? Okay. That's, that's a related aside, but you know, back so to someone the named Marlene that works at your <laughs> workplace. Like, I just thought it that, sounded like a kind of a good workplace a name. name. Yeah. <laughs> I can see it written on a lunch. Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> I'm going to take that lunch if you don't cut it out with your emails. <laughs> Marlene's like the lost Mandrell sister. <laughs> <laughs> okay, no one knows what we're talking about anymore. <laughs> yeah. um, but it, it is funny if you think about like some of the bad uh, lyrics, you know, from from some of the songs that we've just known forever, but also how awful the song would be if they made it correct like whom are you gonna call ghostbusters you know like it's, it's just it, doesn't it doesn't work. have quite the same resonance right it's almost like saying we don't need any education i, I, I don't think uh that, that song, well. yeah 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 and, you know what's love have to do with it you know it's uh so yeah you don't want to be so much of a grammar stickler that you ruin right. the music right but uh Anyway, the the whole point is, man, I'd love to talk to Brian Adams and find out what he meant. Where yeah. was where was his implied punctuation when he wrote that song? Yeah, well, I mean, I will say that maybe his biggest hit has punctuation in the title, which is important. I believe everything I do, I do it for you, has parentheses. Ah, yes. What I can't remember right now, and, and I'm going to be transparent that I'm not looking it up, is whether everything I do is in parentheses or I do it for you is in parentheses. Mm. I feel like the song is called Everything I Do with I Do It For You in parentheses. I'm also not going to look it up, so uh, maybe we'll get some angry emails. Yeah, <laughs> I would love that. <laughs> People who are really emotionally connected with that song might be distressed that we don't know. But if you're going to do it, be sure the grammar in the email is correct. Yeah, and if you say, speak to myself, I will lose <laughs> my mind. Part two. Well, one of the great joys of this particular moment in Songcraft history is that you and I are in the same room right now doing <laughs> it's this. It's, it's one of the great joys of my life and, and week. Um, we've been doing it remotely for so long. And um, it's one of those things where there are certain things that we're, I think we're still doing remotely, you know, yeah. that everybody's sort of easing back into something, you know, normal. If you are still working remotely, maybe because you're a hermit or because you <laughs> live in a, in a desert or for whatever reason you're working remotely and you want to make music, we've told you this before, but I, I think it's important that we tell you again today that there's a place for you. It's called Pearl Snap Studios. 
yeah, Justin and his team at Pearl Snap Studios, they are uh, fabulous. And I got to say, Paul, um, you know, during the whole pandemic, you were out in my garage. Yeah. I was here in this room. We had 100 feet of cable running between the two so that we could actually do this. So we were on the same property, but yeah. we weren't face to face. And, uh, you know, I got to say that having you in this room where I can see you is almost like one of those weird dreams where there's like somebody in a place that's like yes. a different place than you normally know them as. Like yeah. it's kind of weird to, to see you again. It's disconcerting. Um, but I got to say the collaborative energy between us when we were remote, uh, I think we got some magic. It still held up. You I know? think so too. We were firing on both cylinders. Absolutely. And the thing is, <laughs> if you, you know, don't live in Nashville and, and, you know, if you're in Nashville, you can actually go to Pearl Snap Studios. You can work with Justin right there in person. Uh, but if you don't live in Nashville or you're not going to be in Nashville, you can send him something remotely. Mm -hmm. And I think Justin's got a little of that same magic mojo that yeah. we have where he can work remotely and he can connect with people. He can figure out their vision and they can do it from afar and he can create a demo for you of your song or maybe even you're trying to make a, a, something as an artist. You want to do a single, you want to do an EP yeah. or even a record. You know, he can help you even if you guys are not in the same room together because he's just that talented. Yeah, and, and I know Justin well, and, and you've spent time with Justin, and I'll be honest, he makes me uncomfortable. So I think <laughs> the, the whole remote thing is probably the way that you want to go. It's best. Just, it's just best. do it via email. Yeah. He's, a he's a great guy and a fantastic musician. Nice but guy. Yeah. Yeah, but... Uh, I'm kidding. He's, just something. He's one of my dearest friends, and... Uh, <laughs> But yeah, so so check out pearlsnapstudios.com. Tell them that Songcraft sent you. And and basically find yourself a team, you know, to to make this music with. Uh you know, I I didn't provide you with a team on this Michael Franti interview. I I left you you had to do this one by yourself. I did. There was no Paul and team on this one. No. So um but I I trust and I believe and I know that it's one heck of a conversation. It was a great conversation. And, you know, um, Michael Fronte is a super nice guy. Um, really enjoyed talking to him. He, uh, How did owns, he feel about you? I, he did not care for me, yeah. uh, but I'm used to that. Most right. people have that reaction. I'm, I'm a bit of a turnoff. I understand. Um, but, uh, no, we had a great conversation. He was a, a super cool guy, and um, he actually owns, like, a yoga hotel in Bali <laughs> and doesn't have good <laughs> cell service. So we did this via Zoom. Uh, previously, the only interview we had done via Zoom was with Lake Street Dive, which yeah. was a few episodes back. Um, so again, I just want to apologize to everyone that I don't know why I feel like I need to yell uh, <laughs> when I'm talking to someone on Zoom. Maybe it's, they feel more far away. But then when I have this microphone in my face recording my voice, I'm just yelling uh, at you. So, you know, if I had Justin from Pearl Snap Studios here to help me produce this thing, then I probably would have gotten, a, a, you know, a good vocal level. So I just want Michael... And our listeners to know, I'm not mad at you guys. I'm not yelling at you. I just, you know, I want to feel heard. Can I just say that when you said yoga hotel, I, I got stuck on that for a minute because I feel like <laughs> it's such a missed opportunity to for, to come up with the word yotel. Yeah, boy. I think we should get back on the Zoom with uh, Michael so I can yell that idea to him. <laughs> <laughs> just, just shout out the first thing that comes to mind. Part three. Socially conscious and genre-bending artist, musician, rapper, poet, activist, and singer-songwriter Michael Franti launched his career with early groups such as Disposable Heroes of Hip-Hopracy, whose debut release was listed in the book 1001 Albums You Must Hear Before You Die. He went on to form Spearhead, which evolved from hip-hop to incorporate influences including jazz, soul, funk, rock, reggae, and folk. 
The 2008 Michael Fronte and Spearhead album All Rebel Rockers was his first to hit the top 40 on the Billboard album charts on the strength of the single Say Hey I Love You, which was also a top 20 hit on the pop chart. He went on to release a string of albums that hit the rock album's top five, including The Sound of Sunshine, All People, and Soul Rocker. His most recent album is called Work Hard and Be Nice, which was released during the pandemic in the summer of 2020. In addition to his work as an artist and activist, Michael is the owner of a yoga resort hotel in Bali called Soul Shine, from which he joined me for this interview. Michael, welcome to Songcraft. Thanks, Scott. It's great to be here. Well, I understand that you grew up in Oakland. Um, talk about some of the early musical influences that you were hearing as a kid and, you know, maybe who some of the artists were who caught your ear and made you feel like, you know, that might be something I might be interested in doing one day. Well, I was born in Oakland, but I grew up in this little town called Davis, and it's like a university town. And um, I grew up in a very uh, unique family, although when I look at it now, we're kind of like the all-American family. So uh, I was I was adopted at birth and my um, my biological mom and dad, my biological mom is Irish, German and Belgian. My biological father is African-American and not away Indian from the mountains of Virginia. Hmm. And I was adopted by the Franti family who are second generation immigrants from Finland. And they had three kids of their own. And then they adopted myself another African-American son. I have one sister who's a lesbian, one brother who's a police officer. So we, we pretty much have like everything covered. <laughs> you covered all bases. <laughs> covered it all. And music was the same in our house. So um, my mom played organ and piano in the church, um, but it wasn't some fun like Holy Roller or, you know, there's no Little Richard going on. It was very much <laughs> just the basic chords and sing the, sing him 21, 219, right, 17, whatever. Sing it as it was supposed to be. Right. Um, there's no freestyling going on. But, um, but all my brothers and sisters played instruments too. And I didn't, I, I played sports and I was this tall gangly kid. Um, and my parents, my father was an alcoholic and, and so that led to nights when I, you know, my dad had like, kind of like two emotions. It was like the just quiet, sit in the corner and sort of mutter to himself or, you know, complain about something that's happening on the news. He's he was very funny, but he was just always cynicism and sarcasm. Yeah. But then he had the other button, which was rage, you know? Mm -hmm. And so when he was in that space, music was kind of like my retreat you know i'd go and i'd put headphones on and i'd just sit in my room and listen to music and it would take me away and and so in the house you know my my one sister was really into like singer songwriters like jim croce and um you know uh elton john and and my other sister was into like al green and marvin gay and really like deep soul and I had a, a brother who was the most talented musician of, of the bunch and he played about five or six different instruments and he played trumpet and he was interested in all kind of everything from jazz to you know um the you know tower of power and anything that had like really strong horns in it 
Um, and then he got into like parliament and P-Funk and like, um, then it moved over to like the clash and, and punk rock. And, and so there was all this, you know, diversity of music in our house. My parents listened to church music and, um, and jazz and, mm -hmm. and classical music, which I couldn't stand. I hate it. In fact, my punishment as a kid was I had to sit on my hands and listen to classical music. <laughs> so <laughs> I still kind of hate it. <laughs> right, bad association. Yeah. Um, but but when I started first gravitating towards music, I, I would I would listen to the college radio station that we had in our town. And it was like in the mornings it would be a you know, like say hip hop hour, and then two hours later it'd be punk rock hour. And then, you know, noon it would be the, you know, sort of folky, you know, indie hour. And then, you know six o'clock it became chinese news or whatever and it was like this right. whole array of music and and we would go to the bowling alley which is where the record uh where the radio station was located and there would be a little rack outside there that would be filled with seven inches that they would give away like oh we're not playing this and so we'll just put it in this rack and anyway we can have it and i remember one of the first ones that i got was was Kraftwerk trans europe express which was hmm. this crazy all electronic song you know and, and i played it over and over again and and um and that's also you know the first time i hear, heard the sugar hill gang and it was the first time i heard devo and it was the first time i heard the police and so i was just surrounded by all different kinds of music and um culturally none of it had any sort of identification to me because I was growing up in this very mixed household and right. we didn't associate music with like, Oh, this is black music or this is white music. We just, we just flipped the dial on whatever was on the radio we listened to, you know? Mm -hmm. And, and so my musical taste became more about just what made me feel something. And, uh, you know, my house was very, uh, emotionally, cut off, you know, that no, no one was really in touch with their emotions and, and really spoke right. about what they were feeling. And so music became the thing that was the outlet for mm. me. Yeah. And it still is to this day. Yeah. Yeah. Um, well, I've, I've read that you attended the university of San Francisco. Um, and it was there where you put together your first band, the Beatniks, which made a splash locally with fairly experimental original songs like television. Um, tell me about how you made that transition of, you know, music consumer to writing music of your own. Well, with the Beatniks, we, we were a group of five guys who were just hanging out on Haight Street. And there was in San Francisco. And for those of you who aren't familiar with the Haight-Ashbury district, in the 60s and early 70s, that's where like the Grateful Dead, Jimi Hendrix, all these folks were, were rocking out Jefferson Airplane. And then... Um, in the 80s, which is when I was there, it became punk rock and early seeds of hip hop and sort of, you know, goth scene. And and so I, I had a job um, working at a nightclub there and I got to just be exposed to so many different styles of music. And I, I thought, you know, man, I, I, I could probably do that, like like some of this. Like I just see a guy up there, he's on stage, he's kind of jumping around saying whatever he's thinking. And, and, you know, I don't know how to play an instrument, but I could probably get some guys together who did. And so 
I found these guys and we started throwing these underground parties and I, I was always writing poetry. And so I started doing my poetry with a drummer and like a hand drummer. And then we didn't have any instruments. So we'd go out to the shipyards in San Francisco, which were all being closed down at that time. And we'd start playing on pieces of giant metal. Huh. And, um, and, and we made instruments out of these pieces of metal and we'd use on stage, we'd use like grinders and chains and shoot sparks out of the audience. And, <laughs> and the, so, so there was no like, okay, let's sit down and we're, we're going to put, we're going to start this doing in a minor key of, of, <laughs> of angle grinder. You know? <laughs> <It was> like, <laughs> there's none of that kind of songwriting, but there was just like, what is it that I'm feeling? What am I going through? And I would write about it and I'd make it rhyme. And I, you know, there wasn't much like, in the way of like song structure of like, Oh, here's the chorus. Here's the hook. Here's the bridge. You know what I'm saying? So, but it was, it was, um, enough to get us on tour and we opened for Billy Bragg all across um, the States. And then he invited us over to Europe and we got our taste for it. And then that group broke, broke up and I started disposable heroes of hypocrisy. And we had this song television, the drug of the nation that I had originally done a version of with the Beatniks and I made a new version and you too heard it. Thank you for joining us live on the air. My pleasure. One nation under God has turned into one nation under the influence of one drug. Television, the drug of a nation. Breeding ignorance and feeding radiation on television. The drug of the nation. Breeding ignorance and feeding radiation. TV. Its satellite links are United States of unconsciousness. Apathetic, therapeutic, and extremely addictive. The methadone metronome. Pumping out 150 channels 24 hours a day. You can flip through all of them. And still, there's nothing worth watching. TV is a reason why less than 10% of our nation reads books daily. Why most people think Central America means Kansas. Socialism means un-American and apartheid is a new headache remedy. We got signed by Chris Blackwell and Island Records and, and uh, you two heard it and they were doing their Zoo TV tour and they wanted to use the song to, sh to open up their whole Zoo TV show. They, they loved the video. So they'd show the video, then they'd walk out on stage and they'd play their first song. Wow. And so on that tour, I saw how Bono every night would go out on stage and he would start to sing a lyric, then he'd hold the mic up to the crowd and like 50,000 people would just sing the melody, you know? And we'd be in different countries where I knew that they didn't even understand the words, they'd still sing the melody. And I was like, man, there's there's real power in that, in, in melody. It's universal. You don't have to know the words. It's just it's just a feeling. And when you can get people to do that together as one, it's it's really powerful. Yeah. Um, so we were on tour with them and I, and I learned a ton. I learned so much about not only songwriting, but just the power of music. I, I actually got to be there um, the first time that they played one live. Wow. <laughs> and I watched them at Soundcheck. I was like, oh, that's a pretty cool song. And they were still working it out. You know, they had recorded it, but they were still trying to figure out like, oh, which guitar part is Edge going to cover live and which, you know. Yeah. And um, and then I got to see them play it. And uh, man, it was, it was <laughs> really, 
such an incredible thing to see that song being played for the first time. Yeah. Amazing. Um, well, you talk about disposable heroes of hip hopocrisy. Um, you guys tackled a number of social justice issues, um, including taking a, a strong stand against homophobia in the song language of violence. And you know, that was oh. not the typical message in the hip hop world of 1992. Um, oh. And this might be an odd question, but your art uh, and your social justice orientation are so intertwined, I think, in the minds of, of so many people. Um, did you get into lyric writing primarily as an outlet for your ideas? In other words, these ideas are going to find some outlet, whether it be lyrics or something else. Or did you kind of get into lyric writing for the joy of lyric writing and discover, you know, this is the types of subjects that I gravitate toward if that makes sense yeah i really um fell in love with writing when i got into college my first semester of college i had a teacher he's, he was a catholic priest his name was father huerta and i had somehow been able to make it all the way through you know nursery school through 12th grade without ever learning how to write an essay so i walk into this you know english 101 class and you know, I had uh, I went to University of San Francisco really to play basketball, and um, that was my dream was to be in the NBA. And um, and so the first day he says, everybody in my class either gets an A or you fail, you get an F. There's no B, C, D, nothing in between. And I was I just folded up my books. I was like, I'm dipping out, man. Like I've never got an A in anything. You know, right. I'm not gonna get an A in this college. You know. English class and he said well what I mean by that is that I will not allow you to hand in any work until it's a quality and I'll stay with you after class you can knock on my door on Friday night he's like I ain't gonna be doing nothing I'm a priest you know <laughs> you <can> just... <laughs> and so so we did and and he he took me um kind of under his wing and he would take me to like um, City Lights Bookstore in San Francisco, which is which was owned by the recently passed uh, Lawrence Ferlinghetti, um, and all the um, great writers, you know Jack Kerouac and Allen Ginsberg, and all these incredible poets and beat writers, William Burroughs, and and so he taught me how to organize my thoughts and how to write uh, an essay, and um, it really changed the way I thought about storytelling. And it, it turned me on to storytelling. And so as I started to write songs, um, those songs were, they were both, Scott, they were, they were about my feelings and just what, whatever it was that I was going through that I, I always say that I write from whatever breaks my heart or brings my heart great joy. You know, it's one or, one or the other. So, um, you know, when I would look out at the world, I would see like so much um, dysfunction um, so many instances of, um, you know, discrimination and hate. And at the time where I was living in San Francisco was, was the, the, you know, was the height of the AIDS crisis. And, and I saw so many people that I knew from the music community there and the arts community who, whose parents had completely turned their back on them and were just like, you're not my kid anymore. Mm -hmm. Um, just because you're gay. And then those kids were dying, you know, dying yeah. of AIDS and their parents weren't even coming to see him. And, and it really just crushed me. You know, I, I just could, it, you know, I was a young dad myself at the time and I couldn't even imagine how a parent 
to do that. And also someone who was adopted, given up for adoption. And my being there for my kids was like, I got to do it, man. Like no matter what. Yeah. So there was, there was, you know, that, that song language of violence was just a song that I wrote that was about, you know, a kid who gets bullied in school um, and gets um, beaten up and killed. And then this guy who kills him, ends up going to jail. And now the tables are turned. He's like this young guy in jail who's now being bullied and, and picked on. Well, dehumanizing the victim makes things simpler. It's like breathing with a respirator. It eases the conscience of even the most conscious and calculating violator. Words can reduce a person to an object, something more easy to hate than an inanimate entity. Completely disposable, no problem to obliterate. But death is the silence. In this language of violence, death is the silence. But death is the silence. In the cycle of violence, death is the silence. I, I also learned that, that music worked very differently than politics and that that was something that took me a, a, a quite many years to learn but i did you know at first i thought it was just enough to say what the problem was you know like fuck the government or fuck this thing or that you know but then as i went on i learned that people are really moved to change when they feel something in their heart and that mm -hmm. sometimes a, a story about something is more um, moving and changes people's values um than than just you know citing you know statistics or whatever's you know the most current thing in the in the um 24-hour news cycle yeah well in 1994 your group spearhead debuted on capitol records with the album home uh and after a a couple of records um with capitol you guys basically started your own label, became Michael Franti and Spearhead for the third studio album, Stay Human. And that was a, a transitional record in some ways because you have songs like Rock the Nation that fall pretty solidly in kind of the, you know, quote unquote boundaries of hip hop. But then there's other songs like Sometimes, which embrace elements of pop and, and kind of classic era R&B. <laughs> Kind of weak in the knees, learning late about the birds and the bees, falling in love and be set free. And you do get a lot of attention for your lyrics and kind of the social engagement and political nature of, of a lot of your lyrics, but I'd be curious to also hear about your melodic evolution as a writer as you kind of within those first few albums began to broaden the boundaries of what Spearhead's music would and could be. Yeah. Well, when I when I first uh, got started uh, in music with uh, Disposable Heroes, I was working in this little guitar store called Subway Guitars in, in Berkeley. And it's like it's owned by this old 60s hippie named Fat Dog. And and there's all these cast of incredible characters there. And and we would build like the sort of proletariat guitar. We take old necks and bodies and put them together and we put good gears on them so that 
a kid who wanted to learn to play guitar had like an instrument that didn't look super pretty or fancy and it was it was inexpensive um but uh it stayed in tune you know mm. and a kid could could have fun learning to play it yeah and and so uh, at one day i was working in the shop and this guy comes in with a basketball under one arm and and, and he says i want to get a seven string guitar made and so i'm like who, who's this dude, man? He's like, he's into hoop like I am. And he wants to get some weird jazz guitar made. Like, who is this guy? Well, it turned out to be Charlie Hunter, who's like today is one of the most, you know, revered guitar player, jazz guitar players ever. Um, yeah. He plays like eight string guitar. He plays the bass on on one finger and plays the chords and play the leads all at one time. It's just insane. <laughs> yeah. And so Charlie and I would get together and I'd start rapping with Charlie while he'd be playing some jazz stuff. And, and I would notice how my voice, when it would go, I would sing the same thing, kind of like a little bit of a melody, but he would change the chords under it. And I would go, wow, man, that, that really sounds completely different. I'm, I'm singing the exact same thing, but he just changed the chords. And now there's a whole new different melody, a whole new different feeling. And so Charlie really turned me on to that. And, um, you know, I love him. We, we still keep in touch to this day. And, and he's just was an incredible influence in my life and teaching me that that melody uh, had had power. And he was there on that tour with me. He, he went out with Disposable Heroes and, and when we opened up for you two. And and um, so as the years evolved, there was one time I was in the studio and writing a track and, and I was with um, my bass player Carl, who's been with me since '94, and and uh, Carl Young, and 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 I said, man, it would be great if we got somebody to sing the hook on this song. You know, like I wrote this cool rap, and like just needs somebody to sing the hook. And he was like, well, why don't you sing it? You know, like you you sound pretty good, you know. And so, and I was really shy about it, and and I I didn't really have confidence at all as a singer because I'd never done any kind of note training, so. So Carl would sit there in the studio with me and he'd go, you know, Michael, the melody goes like this. And he would play it on the piano. And and then he would say, match the notes, you know. And so he would sit there with me. And this is before we had any kind of um, digital capabilities. We were recording on the ADAT. So when you put it down, that was that's what you had and that's what you got. And there was no yeah. going in and editing. There was no tuning it, nothing. So I had to sit there and sometimes it would be till like three or four in the morning, just singing one line over and over again to try to get it. He'd go, brah, you're, you're flat, man. Right. <laughs> not sharp, no, you rushed it, bro. You rushed it, man. Right. <laughs> and I'd get so frustrated with him. Sometimes <laughs> I had to walk out of the booth and like just take a breath and then come back in, but he stayed with me, man. And yeah, and he really taught me how to, to hit notes and, um, and then I could hear it. I'd start to hear like, oh, man, when I have the note right, if I stack it with another harmony, now they go together and they create this beautiful um, feeling in the harmony. And 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 around that time, also, I started to play guitar. And that's really when my life in music, I, I actually look like feel like there's two kind of, you know, eras in my life as a recording artist one before the guitar when i was just using drum machines and samplers and the studio as an instrument and then after when when i started playing acoustic guitar and i all, pretty much for many years just left all the samplers and drum machines and digital stuff i had learned behind 
and just would sit there with the acoustic guitar and, yeah. and write songs. And I still, I, now, now I kind of do both. I always start with the acoustic guitar, but the groove is really important to me. So I have to find the tempo and, and start to make a, a drum beat once right. I get early into the songwriting. Well, in 2003, uh, you guys released the album, Everyone Deserves Music. And obviously that is a full band, you know, production type of album and has standout tracks like Bomb the World, which includes the now classic line, you can bomb the world to pieces, but you can't bomb it into peace. But at the same time, the same year, you also put out um, an acoustic record called Songs from the Front Porch. And you talk about bringing the guitar in and how the guitar is like this new um, element, this new part of who you are as an artist and a, and a creator. Um, but that record isn't, you know, there's, there's some songs that we hadn't heard before on there, but a lot of the songs are things like Ganja Babe and Oh My God, things that had been earlier spearhead uh, records that are kind of reimagined, you know, and, and presented in a, in a fresh way. Um, why was it important for you at that point to kind of showcase some of your previous songs in this new setting? Well, I started touring a lot doing um, duo dates with just another guitar player and myself. And, and I started to just hear how when you sing a song just with the guitar, um, you, you get to hear, you know, the real roots of the lyrics. You know, I was listening to a song that I just kind of finished writing the other day and put my headphones on. It was last night and I was like, listening to the song and the arrangement we had done for it. And then I went back to the song and listened to it with just myself and the guitar. And I was like, oh man, this, this arrangement we did is completely wrong. It's like, there's, first of all, there's, this is always the case. There's way too much shit on it. <laughs> um, but also just like the, where the drums line up is not, it's not helping to, you know, the lyrics. And I remember hearing this um, conversation uh, with Rick Rubin one time and Rick was saying like the band has to serve the song and the song is the guy singing the words, you know, and, um, and I, st I think of that as an artist when I make a record now, like that really you're just there to get the song across to somebody. But if you can't sing the song, just, to your kid at, at, as, at, at, alone with no instruments when they're going to sleep. And if you can't sing the song with the guitar and you and two friends out by a campfire, it's gonna be really hard to translate it to 10,000 people hmm. um, in an arena. It doesn't matter how many bells and whistles you throw at it. So that, that was the reason I, I made that record was to really just um, allow people to hear the, just the lyrics and the way that I had felt them when I wrote them. Yeah. Yeah. Um, well, I understand that your 2006 album yell fire was inspired by a trip to Iraq and Israel and the Palestinian territories, which provided you with some of your most politically charged lyrics up to that point. Um, but part of that record was recorded in a very different place in the world, uh, Jamaica, which brought some strong reggae influences into songs like time to go home.
take our girls It's time to go home Don't take our boys away Don't take our girls away You know, maybe more than any other record, we see the direct influence of travel on the resulting art. Um, and songwriters, you know, obviously a good songwriter is a good observer. Uh, that's kind of a, a key part of it. Um, and I'd be curious to get your thoughts on how you know, going to different places and just experiencing new environments and new things impacts you when it comes time to write. Mm. Well, I love meeting people and it's the, the favorite aspect of my life is that I, I've, I get to meet a lot of different people and I get to travel to different places. And, and, um, you know, when I was a kid, I never imagined that I would leave my hometown really. And so to be somebody who's you know, been able to travel to Iraq when the war was happening and speak to Iraqi soldiers or U.S. soldiers at night and Iraqi civilians in the daytime and just walk around the streets of Baghdad and play music for people and um, and share uh, stories and hear their life, you know, and um, same thing going to Israel and Palestine and, and Palestinian territories and seeing, you know, what life was like in the Gaza Strip and seeing what life is like in um, you know, other, other parts of, you know, Jerusalem, Israel, traveling to the favelas of Brazil, you know, now I'm living in Indonesia. I've, I've, I've learned that I'm not on the side of, of nations, you know, I'm on the side of people who are willing to take great risks in order to achieve peace and in order to achieve opportunity for as many people as possible to succeed and be happy in life. And that is really what I write about. And um, sometimes, you know, a really interesting thing happened when I was in um, Iraq. I went and I um, spent an afternoon with this Iraqi family and they showed me where they hid during the bombing, you know, of, of Baghdad. And so they would go into their basement and they would all get in the middle of the room and, they, and it would happen at night. So every night there was these bombs that would be dropped by the U.S. They'd go in the basement, they'd get on the floor and they'd put blankets over the children. And I, and I said to the dad, and I said, why did you put blankets on the kids? I mean, if a five ton bunker buster bomb, you know, explodes in your house, it's going to go through five floors of concrete. It's not, you know, a blanket's not going to help. And he said, because we have little windows up in the upper part of the basement. And when the bombs go off, some of the windows break. And just that little insight right there, it, I was like, man, I have two sons. What would I tell my sons? Because one was like, at the time was like, you know, a te young teenager. And the other one was like four or five years old. And I was like, man, what would I tell my two kids? Like to the teenager, like, would I try to explain to him, like, this is, you know, war and this is serious and we got to... But to the four or five-year-old, what would I say to him? Like, how do you start to begin to explain that to a kid that age? Yeah. And it just broke my heart, man. And so I played them the song that you mentioned before, Bomb the World. And it says, we can bomb the world to pieces, but we can't bomb it into peace. And I thought the family would be really, you know, moved and, and resonate with the fact that, you know, I was against this bombing. And, and um at the end of it, the dad looked at me and he was like, how dare you come into my house and sing a song like that while your nation is bombing me? And I was just like, oh, I just, I, you know, I was tearing up. I was like, 
It was not the reaction expected. And he said, why didn't you sing us a song that makes us laugh, dance, cry, feel, you know, forget about where we are, you know, in some way, you know, make us feel happy. Hmm. And so I did. And when I got back, you know, I thought I'd write 10 angry songs about war, but I ended up writing a few songs about that, but mainly songs about connection and how people find hope during challenging times. And, you know, this COVID situation is no different. You know, it's, you know, I look around the world and I see a lot of people who are, are hurting, you know, and it's easy to, to put a label on people. You see, you know, even people who are out in the street and they're like, I'm not going to wear a mask and I'm not taking a vaccine and, you know, fuck the government and let, you know, what I see is somebody who's hurting inside, man, and who really misses the fact that they can't be with their workmates. They can't go and do the things they once did. Their job is suffering. They're not getting paid right now. And I try to identify with that part of people that is, um, that's really universal. That really is about what is it that's hurting you? Cause I, cause I know that what you're doing on the outside isn't necessarily what's going on on the inside. It's just your way of showing it right here in this moment and, and learning that in Iraq, learning that growing up in a family that I did with an alcoholic father and the way he expressed himself, seeing it with people all around the world. I've learned that the majority of people are really the same. There's very little that separates us. You know, yeah. 99% of what people want is just a safe place, raise their kids, get them to school, food, shelter, a job, have fun on the weekends. That's what most people just want. And they, when, within that 1% is actually where the beauty is, man. That, that, that mm -hmm. The things that we do different, the music, the food, the things that make us different is actually where the, the real beauty is. And sometimes yeah. we forget that. Mm. Yeah, yeah. Well, I, I think if you ever had any impulse to uh, write a song that is going to make people smile or make people dance, um, you hit the ball out of the park in 2008 with uh, Say Hey, I Love You, which is one of those songs that has the power, no matter how bad a day I'm having, if I hear that song, I'm going to roll down the windows. It feels good. It's like it, it's it's almost like the instant medicine for, for whatever ails you. album and and I was working with a producer and we had written a bunch of tunes and re recorded them and we had spent pretty much everything that we had on the record and 
and I still wasn't happy with it. I was like, man, there's something that's not, something that's not clicking here for me. And, and, uh, so I was staying at Woody Harrelson's house and he was gone. He was like, look, you can stay at my house and write songs here, Michael. And he was like, it's a very creative place, bro. <laughs> and I was like, all right, I'm in. So I get in his shower and I start, I, I like to put chords down on, on my um, iPhone. So I'll just play a little riff on the guitar and then I'll put it down on my iPhone and then I'll just sit around the house and I'll just start to write to those things as I'm going about my day. So I was in the shower and I start writing that melody, you know, say, Hey, I'll be gone today, but I'll be back. I'm around. I don't know it. And, and, um, I started writing it on the steam in the glass and the shower. And I, I get out of the shower and Woody calls me. He's like, Michael, how's the songwriting going? I said, I think it's going really great, bro. I think I may have written a hit song in your bathroom. And Woody says, <laughs> Is it a number one or a number two? <laughs> so, <clears throat> that was our first song that we ever had in the top 20. And it made it, you know, I don't know where it eventually made it. And, you know, in some formats it went to number one. But, you know, it was in the top 10 on the Billboard charts. And, and, and I was like, we'd never had a song in the top 20,000. I mean, <laughs> I, I, I don't even know if, you know, we'd ever been on any chart ever before that. And uh, at least in America. And, um, and so suddenly, you know, at this time when I, I wasn't sure, you know, where my career was gone and I, I really wasn't happy with the record. Oh, we'd also gone, I'd taken the song after I wrote it and I played it for um, Sly and Robbie, who were the great rhythm section who'd work with so many, you know, everybody from Bob Marley, Peter Tosh, all the way up to No Doubt and Grace Jones and, you know, every dance hall artist that's out there, Beanie Man, Bounty Killer, everybody. And so I did a show with them at a festival and I played the song for them backstage on the guitar and, and Sly was like, we could chew man, you come to Jamaica, I would make a rhythm for that, you know. So I went down there and they put this rhythm track together for it that just, was like what you just described Scott like just this super funky and fun and just great vibes and it just took the song from being like a little folk ditty into like being this you know beach anthem you know yeah and, and the song came out in uh like 2008 or 2009 uh it was it came out for a little bit and got on the AAA radio and we were excited. We were like, man, we finally have a song on AAA on, on radio anywhere, you know, that wasn't just mom and pop college radio or something. And, um, and then it went away. It came out in the fall and then by the winter, the, the stations had moved off it. And, but we were just stoked. We were like, oh man, this is great, you know. And um, we were on Bad Religions record label, Anti, at that moment. And um, we were like happy, you know, here we are on this little independent punk rock label, we're getting a song on the radio. And then in the spring of the following year, uh, there was a, a, a um, radio programmer in Green Bay, Wisconsin, and he had gone on vacation with his family to Mexico and the record was getting played at the beach. And they had like one CD in the bar and it was my CD. And the whole album would play but every time that one song came on his wife and kids would get up and dance and so he's like what's this song so he asked him and when he got back to the states he got the song and 
he went in the station he goes hey just came back from vacation and i want to know what you guys think of this song so he put it on and like the phones lit up and everybody started calling in and and it was a top 40 station he was like yeah here's britney spears and then here's michael brandy and spirit you know and, <laughs> and um it was just kind of like one of those songs that then they you know as they do in 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 the radio world um folks may not know this but when when songs get on the radio it's they they test them and they have people listen to like 10 seconds of the hook of the song and sort of give it a thumbs up or a thumbs down and, and that song for months and months was beating out every other song on the on the pop charts and and so it started spreading around and 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 it really helped our career as musicians um in a band take off because it was right at the time when cd sales were just completely declining and we'd never been a cd selling band a record selling band we were always a band to just hit the road in our van or bus and just chugged along and that's how we made our living um, but suddenly we got on the radio and our audience grew from this little cult following of, you know, 1500 people in every market. And pretty soon we were, you know, selling out Red Rocks and, and, and playing at, you know, places that, and, and then the front row was like 35 year old women who were there with their 13 year old kid who loved the song too. And so right. a whole new generation came into our music. Yeah. Amazing. Um, well, the feel good vibes uh, continued with the title track single of the 2011 album, The Sound of Sunshine. And that's the sound of sunshine coming down. And that's the sound of sunshine coming There are a lot of great songs on that record, including Shake It and Hey, Hey, Hey. Um, and I've read that you were working on that album at the same time that you were out touring with John Mayer. And from a songwriting perspective, I'd be curious to know how, you know, playing in front of a live audience every night impacts the writing process as you're kind of trying out songs, engaging, you know, that immediate audience response. It's almost the live version of what you're saying. The, the radio guy experienced in the restaurant, you get a, a you're, you're doing like a, your own testing right there. Well, that's the great thing about it, you know, is one of the things that I love about, um, making music as opposed to other forms of art, like film, for example, which I also love, you know, you work on a film for a couple of years and you, you know, you go through this process of production and filming and editing and marketing and all these things. And then somebody goes and sees your film once and it, when it's already done and they may never see it ever again, they may be, Oh yeah, I loved, even if they loved it, it's like, I love that film. Great. One of my favorite films ever. And I've seen it once, you know, and, but songwriting is different. You, you can just wake up in the morning, you can write a song and you can go on stage or a street corner that night and you can play it and you see the response immediately. And that's what I do. And I've always done throughout my career is as soon as I write a song, I go test it, you know, and there's no better way than on a real audience. And you immediately see like, you know, are, are they responding to the lyrics is the tempo right is anybody dancing to it is maybe this is a song that people don't don't need to dance to you just need to really have just be the guitar and keep it real simple and 
so you, 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 you get the, you know, like market research analysis, I guess, you know, just firsthand, but it's really about people's hearts, about people's first impressions. And that's really what matters more at the end of the day than, than does a song um, test well for the radio. You know, I always want my songs to be played on the radio. Every single one of them, I wish they were all played on the radio. But more than that, um, I want my songs to become part of people's um, medicine cabinet. You know, we were kind of talking about earlier how, you know, we reach for songs when we're going through different moods, you know, and that's what I want my songs to be. I want my song to be something that somebody goes, oh, man, I'm feeling kind of crushed today by the world. Let me go to that song and, and and I know it's always gonna lift me up or or here's a song that I'm really pissed off, I'm in traffic and let's put on Rock the Nation, let's just pound our head and just go, you know. And, um, and so there's that connection. If I don't see it in the audience when I first play it, then I, I know I gotta go back and either rework it or let it sit for a while and come back to it later. Speaking of which, are you a writer who writes um, primarily from, you know, inspiration. I, I woke up and I just had this incredible idea or do you try to set aside maybe specific hours of the day or even specific days of the week where you, um, kind of discipline yourself? How, how does that work for you? I write all the time and, um, there has been times in my life when I felt, uh, like writer's block. But I would say in the past five or six years, I'm, I'm just always writing. And it doesn't mean it's all good. There's a lot of it that, that never makes it, it, it onto you know, a record. But what I mean by that is I'll just wake up in the middle of the night and I'll be dreaming a song and I'll just grab my phone and start singing a melody. Um, and you know, my wife's like, who are you talking to? <laughs> I'm like, no, it's just me. I'm just singing a song. Go back to sleep. You know, so she's used to it at this point. Um, or just wherever I'm at, you know, if I'm just at the beach or if I'm, you know, somewhere in, in my car, I'll just, you know, turn on the dictaphone on the phone and just, you know, sing the melody into it. And then when I'll get into the studio, sometimes I'll be like, ah, um, there was that song and I know, so, you know, a couple of weeks ago I made a voice and, and I'll, I'll listen back to it. And, and usually there's something good there. And I do always start from the hook of the song. And I, I've learned, um, it was actually Sting who told me this. He was like, I, I said, how do you write songs? And he, and he was like, I could teach you what my methodology in five minutes. And he goes, first of all, I always write from the hook of the song because if I, if I start with the verse and I get to where the hook should be and if I don't have something catchy and, and cool to say that's memorable, then I'm just stuck, you know. So I always write from the hook backwards. And then in the verses, I just I just tell the uh, the story, the problem of the story, you know, what's going on. And in the in the chorus, I try to find something that's memorable to to sing along to that substantiates what you I, I wrote in the verse. I do a little musical middle eight, you know, and then write the second verse. And then in the bridge, I try to answer the question. I try to solve the problem, you know, hmm. and make you feel like, all right, there's still hope in the world, you know. And and when he told me that, I, I, I really was at a time when I was just kind of 
moving from really writing rap lyrics to starting to write more melodic things and learning about um, more like classic, you know, three minute, 30 second pop form. And I fell in love with it. You know, um, I fell in love with the craft of simplicity and how do you make it be great in three minutes and 30 seconds? And how do you write a hook that people can sing along to it? And, and, um, it's a, it's a pursuit that I love. I love talking about it. I love listening to the way that other people do it. And, and when I listen to songs today on the radio or on Spotify or something, I'm always like, how did this song make it to be something that somebody said, Hey, I want to recognize this on Spotify. I want someone else to hear this. Or if it's on the radio, I want somebody else to hear this. And in my most crass mind, I, I say, Oh, well, some radio station played paid money to get this on the air or whatever. But still, that song had to make it up through all the other songs that were written for that record, had to make it up through all the A&R meetings, had to make it up to the radio meetings, had to, the artists had to love it, the artists had to kill it on the performance, the producer had to make a great production of it, they had to be mastered, everything, to, for it to get there. And I figured there's got to be something in it that's good. And it doesn't matter what genre it is, it doesn't matter anything. If, 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 if you're hearing a song just randomly walking down the street. It means that there have already been hundreds or thousands of people who, who, who have given it. It's, you know, the stamp of there's something cool in here that you might want to hear. Yeah. Yeah, for sure. Um, you know, talking about that kind of evolution, um, you know, going from rap to kind of writing the, the pop song, you know, the, your 2013 single I'm alive was probably your most pop oriented single to date. Funny, like if if you were to just listen to something from earlier in your career and then listen to that and not listen to anything in between, it sounds like a world apart. But you you kind of brought us there, you know. You kind of brought us along each step of the way. Um, I'd be curious to hear a bit about um, the composition of that song in particular. Well, I it was you know it's pretty simple like three chord riff, and we just started doing the strum and and. Uh, the time we needed something that was up tempo and my my guitar player jay bowman and i um were uh working in L in la and um the, the producer engineer that we were working with was like hey this this little cool cool you know four on the floor dance beat with the acoustic guitar i think that'd be kind of cool and so we we just started building it up from there and um i remember just feeling at that time that uh i had this feeling of gratitude in my life that i've been through a lot as as a musician as a father as a person who you know grew up feeling like a, a, a somebody who was left out and i was just really grateful to be alive you know and and um 
so I started singing, I'm alive, I'm alive. And, um, and it just was one of those songs that just, you know, it happened really fast. Like a lot of the songs that I write, I spend weeks changing lyrics and rewriting them and getting them. But that was one of those ones that came like literally in like two hours, we had the whole song written and recorded. Wow. And then when we played it for people at the label, they're like, oh, that's the single. Okay, that's the single. Okay, that's the single. So, <laughs> right. And what you're saying though, Scott, about how, you know, I've grown over the years, you know, sometimes I get knocked by my um, fans. They're like, man, we want the a angry fronty. And then other fans will be like, man, keep that political shit to yourself. And, you know, I, I've always been somebody who believed that music was about expressing the full rainbow of human emotion and that all of us carry all of it, you know, anger, love and everything in between. And as a songwriter, like the goal is to try to create the right um, palette of colors, notes, melody, rhythm, groove to express that emotion. And um, sometimes you really nail it and you hit it on the head and people just, they just feel the song, you know, it moves someone to tears or it makes their, their hair stand up on end the first time they hear it, you know. And um, that's when you know that you've really authentically captured the right framework for that emotion. And so as I've grown as an artist, it's become less about, you know, the genre and more about well, what am I feeling and what's the best way to say this that someone else is going to be able to relate to. And, you know, I used to just write songs for myself and just be like, oh, if nobody likes it, fuck it. It's, it's just, you know, it's just, you know, this is all about me. But as I've grown as an artist, I realized that my songs aren't just mine. They don't just belong to me. They belong to be interpreted by whoever hears it. And sometimes when you make a song that is so specific that it's about that something for you or that you understood, you, you, you don't leave the opportunity for someone else to create their own interpretation of it. You know, mm -hmm. I remember hearing that song, uh, that seal did for the Batman soundtrack, you know, kiss of a rose on a grave or whatever. I can't even remember what the words were. And I remember hearing it and then seeing it in the Batman movie. And I was like, this song didn't have anything to do with Batman. <laughs> you know? But when I saw it in the movie, it was like, damn, I really does kind of sum up Batman's dark inner right. know, pain and the stuff that Batman has gone through. And I had already liked the song before that yeah um, but it just goes to show like that that a song can be everybody has the opportunity to interpret it however they want yeah yeah um as we get into your um more recent work you know like your 2016 album soul rocker you kind of see bringing back in some more of those kind of electronic elements from earlier it's kind of coming full circle and bringing the best of uh, you know, the various parts, the various seasons of your career and starting to kind of synthesize those things. And um, that's an interesting record to me, just in the way that you see a lot of those different creative forces coming together in, mm -hmm. in a way that sort of sums up um, your career. Uh, but your most recent album, Work Hard and Be Nice, um, threw me a curveball. 
Um, there's a song in there called Start Small, Think Big. It sounds like a country song to me. And I noticed it was co-written with the Warren Brothers. Yeah. Um, I'm a Nashville native, so I know who the Warren brothers are that they're you know a country uh brother duo and i had not really picked up on any country influence in your work and i have to say that track uh kind of surprised me start small think big ain't no other better way to live if you think big start small you ain't gotta have a lot to have it all slow it down take your time because the sun shines on us all start small and think big, y'all. Everybody wants a whole lot of money in their pocket. Big house, a big car, a big boat, a big rocket. More money, more problems. But more money can't solve them. Everybody's in a hurry, get to God knows where. Then they worry about what they're gonna do when they get there. I've been there before. But I've learned more and more. You gotta start small and think big. Ain't no other better way to live if you think big. You know, um, I was working in our management is in Nashville. And so they have always been trying to get me to come out there and write with some Nashville writers. And and so um, on this, the, the record before that, on the Soul Rocker record, I had worked with Nico Moon, who's actually got a huge country single at the moment, um, Good Times. and and um, Ben Simonetti, and he's another great writer. They've done a lot of stuff with Zach Brown. And so um, I was working with a great producer named Chris Stevens, who is also a great country writer. And Chris was like, hey man, you know, have you heard of these guys, the Warren Brothers, they dig what you do, and would you be interested in writing with them? I was like, sure man, let's, let's go for it. So they came over and, and um, we started writing that song. And I was like, I just, I just said, you know, I have this idea of like, you know, start small, think big. And, and um, I think it'd be a cool idea for a song. And so those two guys started vibing on it. And pretty soon we, we came up with this, you know, sort of acoustic guitar song with like 808 beat. And, um, and uh, I really like that song. I, it's, it's a song that um, really speaks to um, just my evolution as an artist, as a father, um, as an entrepreneur, entrepreneur and hotel owner here in Indonesia, um, of the idea of starting small and thinking big and, and that you always have to have a dream to, to lead you and to guide you. And, um, I love, I've always loved country music because of the storytelling element of it. And, even though my story of where I come from is different than just, you know, trucks and beer and, and you know, fishing and that kind of stuff. Uh, although, although I do love to fish, I was part of a big part of my life growing up. Um, but uh, it's not about what you write a story about. It's the way that you tell your story. And there are so many great songwriters in, in the country world that um, are great interpreters of of someone's story, you know, and, and I always, when I, when I first started writing in music, I, I, I used to believe that if you collaborate with somebody, you're going to get their story and not your story. And so I, I was resistant to it. But in the last few years, I realized that when you sit down with somebody and you start to write, you, you get faster to the point. 
you know it's like what maybe you get stuck on man I, oh god i got a great first line but i can't think of the second line and i've got a great hook but man i still have can't even just get to the hook because i haven't figured out the second line yet and you work with somebody else and they go well how about this and and it's like ah oh, duh like why didn't i think of that and right it's like, you didn't think of it because you're not that person <laughs> right <laughs> you know yeah and and that's that's the power of 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 writing collaboratively and yeah. this year I haven't done much of it because of COVID. And so I've gone back to my early writing days of, of writing solo. And, and um, uh, there's been so much to write about for me this year, so, you know, because there's been so much challenge and pain and not only in the world, but in myself and growth in the relationship with my family and, and being off the road for the first time in 33 years and, hmm. and, and being, um, I have a two and a half year old son and I have two sons that are already grown and out of the house. And, and so really to be able to, it was the first time I've been able to spend this much time with any of my children. And, you know, that, that simultaneously has been a joy for me and, and also something that I regret, you know, as I look back on my years as a, as a touring artist, you know, so there's just been a lot of conflicting feelings and emotions and it's been a fertile time for, for writing music. Yeah. Yeah. Is that your son, uh, in the video with you for uh, start small, think big. Yeah. Start small, think big. That's, that's him, baby Taj. Yeah. My second thought while watching that video was what a cute, uh, little boy. My first thought was how is Michael Franti 10 years older than me and looks 30 years younger than me. <laughs> You're in good shape, man. <laughs> I, I try it, man. I, I, I train every day. Um, I haven't always been, this in good a shape and I, I've gone through a renaissance in the last few years of really trying to take care of myself. Um, I was inspired by Tim McGraw. I was inspired by um, other artists that I've seen on the road who've really been committed. John Mayer was another one who was really committed to, uh, to keep, to, to staying fit. And um, uh, you know, if I don't show up for my body, it's really hard to show up on stage for the people that I love to do what I do and for. And so I, I try, you know, to eat really well. That's the main thing for me because I love sugar. <laughs> right. And I love staying up late at night and writing right. songs. And sugar's the thing that keeps me going. Right. But um uh you know, I I've learned that and and this is the same in, in songwriting, but it's it's like you're not just the one song that you wrote one time. You you are what you've done consistently over decades, you know, and and that's the key to to writing great songs and and um you know sometimes you might have a hit that just blows up and everybody loves it and everybody sings it and plays it at their barbecue and their bar mitzvah and their wedding and everything else other times you, you don't but uh the songs still really mean something to you and are really powerful and meaningful to the people that they connect with and taking care of your body's the same way. It's like something you just, you just got to do every day till the point that it becomes second nature. And, and, um, when I started working a few years ago, I, I there was a woman who came to one of my shows and she's like, Michael, I, I, you need to get in shape. <laughs> <laughs> she had seen me before and she was like, you need to get in shape. So <laughs> I started to, um, she was a trainer and we started working together online and she'd send me workouts and she'd send me meal plans. And I, she said something to me that really stuck. She said, it's, it's about creating um, good habits. And so you have some 
habits that are no longer serving you. And now we're going to change them. And she said, in six weeks, you can change a habit. In six months, it'll become second nature. And in one year, if you keep doing it, it'll, it'll be, you'll have it for life. Hmm. And so that's what I did. I just really believed in her. And six weeks, I was able to change a bunch of habits. And six months, I was able to make them second nature. And, and now I feel like um, if I don't get up and work out, that I, I don't feel uh, ready for the day, rest of the day. So yeah. apart from the days when I'm ill or, or just need to rest because I've been really tired, which is another thing I've learned is you got to sleep and you got <laughs> right. to get your rest, you know? Yeah, yeah, um, absolutely. Well, uh, definitely inspirational on all fronts. It's really cool to chat with you about your, your songs and your writing process. We've just barely scratched the surface of a, of a wide ranging career that incorporates uh, a lot of influences, a lot of genres. Um, but thanks so much for just spending some time and, and chatting with us today. Thanks, Scott. It was awesome to, to, to just hang out with you. And uh, um, I look forward to doing a deep dive on all your other podcasts, man. Yeah. I'm, I'm excited to listen to them. So I'm going to, I'm going to, I'm, I'm a, I'm a podcast junkie. So I'll just get on it one weekend. Nice. Nice. Do a bunch. Cool. Thanks, man. All right. Take care. Thanks for listening. We'd love to stay connected with you, so please take a moment to subscribe to Songcraft via Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or your podcast app of choice. If you like the show, we ask you to consider rating us and leaving us a good review. Word of mouth is important, and letting other potential listeners know what you think of the show helps us tremendously. You can also sign up for our email list at songcraftshow.com and find out how to help support us at patreon.com slash songcraftshow. And you can follow us on social media by searching for Songcraft Conversations on Instagram and Songcraft Show on Facebook and Twitter. And finally, be sure to check out our friends at the American Songwriter Podcast Network at americansongwriter.com. Thanks, as always, for listening and for your support.